HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker's first-of-its-kind virtual agritourism conference. For more information, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. Hi, and welcome to Opening Soon on Heritage Radio Network. We are your hosts, Jenny Goodman and Alex McCreary. Opening Soon is a weekly show that will walk you through the steps of opening a restaurant through conversations with some of the world's greatest chefs, restaurateurs, and the vendors that help take their business from just an idea to opening soon. Jenny and I have been in the hospitality business for over 25 years. I've been fortunate enough to be part of opening one restaurant that still stands today and humbled enough to have owned one restaurant named Goods that lasted less than six months. When launching Goods, we failed to create a business plan before jumping in. We didn't bother with a partnership agreement, and we missed some major components of our income statement. Our experience with Goods is a big reason we feel we're the ones that can ask the questions. Basically, we need answers. Aside from our own firsthand experience inside restaurants, including one pretty epic fail, we are currently the founders of Tillit NYC, a hospitality workwear brand that has proudly outfitted over 4,000 restaurants and counting since launching our business in 2012. We are so fortunate to witness many restaurants come to life. Being part of that journey is one of the best parts of our job, and we want to share that feeling and all those lessons that can be learned with all of you. Our goal is that this podcast will help bridge the gap between the teacher and the student, help alleviate some of the risk when you're opening your restaurant, and offer you some lessons that you might have been looking for when building your business plan. So the first 12 episode season will sequentially take you through the steps of your business plan from choosing your partners to nailing design and to getting those doors actually open. We will be picking the brains of industry leaders, including Chef Missy Robbins, Camilla Marcus, and Steven Satterfield, just to name a few. So if you're in the process of building a business plan, just starting culinary school, improving or expanding in your current business, or just fascinated by what it takes to get the restaurant open, we hope this podcast will entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey from idea to opening soon. Follow the journey on Heritage Radio and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Good evening, and welcome back to the summer season of Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. 
This week, a landmark new report from the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services was released, stating that nature is declining globally at unprecedented rates and the rate of species extinction, about one million species to be exact, is accelerating. Joining the show to help unpack this report is Susan Casey Lefkowitz, Chief Program Officer for the Natural Resources Defense Council, or NRDC. Susan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jenna. Okay, so before we get into um, talking about the uh, report, can you just give us a little bit of an overview of um, what NRDC does? Sure. So the Natural Resources Defense Council We've been around for about 50 years. We were um, among those who were helping write the very first environmental laws in the United States, you know, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act. And we're basically a group of scientists and lawyers and economists and policy experts, you know, communicators um, who focus on trying to help make sure that we have safe and healthy communities and that our nature and wildlife are preserved and that we're tackling the challenge of climate change through advancing clean energy. And we do that here in the United States and in our work around the world. And your role at NRDC, you direct um, the, let me tell me if I get this right, the Climate and Clean Energy, Healthy People and Thriving Communities, Nature and International Programs. Is there anything left? (laughs) (laughs) So at at, at NRDC, I do. I direct all of our programmatic work. Um, and then in addition, we have a team um, of really excellent litigators who are helping make sure that, especially in this time of the Trump administration, that we're able to push back through going to court. Mm-hmm. We have a great team of communicators. We have a great team that focuses on how we um, interact with governments and build strong campaigns to help advance our work. Because, you know, we, we take it all the way at NRDC. We go from thinking about the the solutions that are needed on the policy front all the way through making sure that they not only happen in practice, but that they really make the, the kinds of changes happen that help us improve our lives and help us save our environment. Yeah, I imagine this is a particularly busy time for everybody at the organization, given our current political climate. Um, Okay, so uh, you have done some writing on the report, and obviously this is, um, you know, very much in your wheelhouse. And I think you called the report, was it horrific? (laughs) Was that the right word that you used? Yeah, I mean, this global biodiversity assessment, it's really the first time that scientists from around the world have given us such a clear and tragic picture of what our current path is in, in terms of our natural systems and the destruction that is going to happen if we don't change the way that we're conducting business, um, you know, the way that we're farming, the way that we're fishing, the way that uh, we're using fossil fuels that are driving climate change. So what? Um, so yeah, let's let's get into this report. Um, how big of a undertaking was it? Who is responsible for the, you know contributing to it? And what kind of time frame does it span? So the UN pulled together a team of um, so many scientists, thousands of scientists from around the world, and every country in the world in some way has contributed to and supported um, the development of this assessment. And what they did is they basically looked at all of the different kinds of pressures that are on our natural systems, um, our land, our rivers, our oceans, 
um, and they tried to understand what that would mean for those natural systems, for the plants and animals that live in them, and also for us as humans, because, of course, we are so dependent on natural systems. I think sometimes we forget how interconnected the world is and how if we are hurting um, our natural systems and the wildlife that, that depend on them, we're also hurting ourselves. And it's been called a landmark report. What is so special um, about, was it like the way this conducted or just sort of like the breadth of um, information that it includes? You know, what was really striking to me was that it was the first time that we had a report um, of this breadth, of this depth, um, that had such clear um, predictions and that showed um, that we're really accelerating the loss of our natural systems. And at the same time, it's also a report that contains some hope, right? It's not just saying this is happening and it's too late. It's saying this is happening and there is still time to change the path that we're on and to make better choices. Um, okay, so what about in terms of the like science, though, was there the new science that was conducted or is it was it like a meta-analysis and does that kind of affect the how some people the efficacy of you know the report in some people's opinion yeah i mean my my sense is i've been hearing reactions to the report is that this is being seen as an a very credible report um and it's being taken very seriously around the world and what it's basically showing is that biodiversity is declining faster than at any other time in human history um, you know, the report predicts that of the 8 million species that we think are on this earth, mm-hmm. 1 million are in danger of extinction if our current practices continue, some in the next few decades. And, and it shows that already more than 500,000 species already have insufficient habitat for long-term survival and basically are dead species walking unless we restore their habitat. Why? I mean, this is going to seem like a super basic question, but... Um... You know, why, like, what is the kind of, like, important, when you think about biodiversity, what does that really mean? And why is that, like, so inherently important and connected to everything that we do? Yeah, well, let me, let me give one example. Um, So when we look at pollinators, like our bees, Mm -hmm. we know that they're responsible for, you know, one out of every three bites of food we eat. And bees pollinate the food. Foods that we love, like apples and almonds and carrots and pumpkins and strawberries. And the value of bee pollination is estimated at around $15 billion a year. And bees are dying at alarming rates. You know, this is something that I think we've become very aware of in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, We lose about 30 to 60% of honeybee colonies every year. And our native bee populations, like the rusty patch bumblebee, are also plummeting. And you know, these things are linked to pesticide overuse and habitat loss, to climate change and disease. Um, but of course, pollinators are critical for our food. And so, you know, this is just one of so many stories of the connection between our natural systems and our own health and livelihood. And I feel like that, I mean, as, I, you know, kind of we become more urban and you see like just a larger disconnect certainly between urban and rural communities, at least in this country, I feel like that's probably that concept, you know, my senses gets a little bit lost on people. Like we lose that connection point. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I mean, 
One thing that this report makes clear is that farmers are on the front line of this biodiversity crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when we're looking at potential solutions, one, one big area for solutions is protecting large interconnected natural systems, both on land and in the oceans. But a, another is moving away from agricultural practices that neglect our soil or poison our pollinators or destroy critical natural systems. And in the long run, those kinds of agricultural practices can actually be better for farmers and their livelihoods. Yeah. Um, so, well, I mean, we have talked a lot about the, there's a couple of climate change reports, right, that came out in the past few months, the mm-hmm. IPCC report, the National Climate Change Assessment, and those focus on, well, like climate, <laughs> climate change. So how is this report different or how does this report kind of like fit into or build on the findings um, from those yeah. previous So the acceleration of climate change and its impacts is definitely one of the key causes of the loss of biodiversity that we're seeing around the world. But, you know, others are destruction of natural systems, like through um, cutting down forests for things like tissue paper and toilet paper, or um, cutting down rainforests to plant palm oil, or overuse of species, as we see in many fisheries. you know, the, the main thing that this report shows is that there's no one pressure on our natural systems. There's a series of pressures, and it's the fact that they're all happening at once and they're all getting worse that are causing such a stark decline in the future if we don't change our own um, actions. Yeah. I, I mean, I read that, you know, that climate change is, I think one of the findings said that it's got a relatively low impact compared to some of the other causes, which is that was really striking to me because it's sort of been kind of like the, the focus um, and certainly in the like previous reports that I've read recently. But um, yeah, it, it has been a big focus. And I would say, um, you know, my impression was that climate change is up there as as one of the main causes of the biodiversity loss, especially Mm -hmm. looking ahead in the future if we're not able to change the path that we're on with with climate change. Um, But there are so many others. And, you know, climate change is uh, rightly so uh, seen as a just critically important global problem that we need to fix for Mm -hmm. so many reasons. This is one of them. Right, right. I mean, this is, if anything, just sort of opens your eyes to how many more causes there could possibly be. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so the, so if you had to kind of summarize the basic, you know, the, the basic points for people, and then we can drill down on some, you know, specific kind of stats that are, that maybe you found particularly alarming, how would you kind of like, you know, what's the, the, the 30,000 foot view of what this report says? Yeah, well, I mean, this report basically says that um, we are putting our natural systems and the plants and animals that that live in them under such pressure that we're going to see a very different world just in a matter of decades than than what we have right now. And it will be a world that makes it much harder for us as humans Mm -hmm. to exist and exist um, in the kinds of lives that we enjoy right now. Um, and then what are some of the statistics that you found, m- like, even surprising to you, surprising even though you, you know, you do this work every day? 
Was there anything that kind of caught you off guard? Well, I mean, the, you know, the one million um, species being in danger of extinction, it's a big number. Um, yeah. And, yeah. It's, and it's a startling number. And although I had, you know, I had, an, I had a good sense of the path that we were on and how dangerous it was, seeing that number in a report by so many, you know, incredibly um, highly respected scientists from around the world was really striking, and it, it strikes you not just with a sense of, um, I guess it, it strikes you with a sense of grief, as mm-hmm. you know, among all the other things that you might feel, the thought of that much destruction in our world. Um, I know for me, it, it hit me pretty hard, and it's something I've, I've been struggling with this week to come to terms with, and to really think about how can we dig in even more than we already are in terms of setting up the kinds of systems we need to protect those natural systems. Um, so any any other, so the, so the one million was the, I mean, that's maybe the biggest number that I, <laughs> I read um, that jumped out on me, um, to me. But um, in terms of like, you know, I mean, any kind of other, other points that you really want people to make sure they know well, you know, the the other main thing is that, again, people should not feel hopeless in reading this report. It's really important that we are clear-eyed about the kind of damage that certain practices can cause mm-hmm. so that we can make change. And what this report also made clear is that the kind of change that we need to make is change that we know how to make. We know what those solutions look like. You know, we have the technology. Um, these are not things that are wildly expensive. They're often things that will go hand in hand with better economic outputs, um, better jobs for people. And so it's about choosing a path, though, that needs political will to move into new policies and to stand up to industries that are really entrenched in the status quo, whether it's the large agricultural industrial sector or it's the um, sector that's producing a lot of pesticides or it's the fossil fuel sector. What? Um, okay, so you've also written that the current frameworks that we have in place aren't adequate to address these issues. What are some of those frameworks that you see as kind of currently failing, maybe first at the international level, and then we can talk a little bit more about domestically. Can you give us an example? Yeah. Well, we have a lot of international agreements and national laws to protect biodiversity. Um, You know, internationally, we have the Convention on Biological Diversity, um, a lot of different conventions that deal with everything from fisheries to species management to trade in endangered species. You know, in the U.S., we have our national parks and protected areas. We have the Endangered Species Act. But um, internationally, these frameworks have not yet set out clear enough guidance about, you know, that that really um, has countries firmly committed to much higher levels of protection than we're currently achieving. And in the U.S. right now, all of these things that we have and where, where they give us the framework to go further, to protect more, they're actually under threat by the Trump administration. Um, so existing protected areas, existing monuments are under threat by the Trump administration. Um, the Endangered Species Act is under threat by the Trump administration. And so we're actually living in a time right now where in the U.S., far from 
you know, kind of setting the stage to move forward with, with progress and good action in this area, we're actually having a government that is trying to undermine past action, past progress. Yeah, um, that, that is certainly that is certainly true. Um, but OK, so we are not so the U.S. is not really contributing at all to sort of the an overall like international push or step in the right direction. Are there other countries who are stepping in to lead the, the charge? Well, one thing that we're seeing is um, that there's a call internationally, and, and my organization, NRDC, is part of this, to secure a new international set of commitments under the Convention on Biodiversity. And those commitments would be to protect 30% of the land and 30% of the oceans by 2030 across the world. And it's that's the new kind of commitment that our natural systems need. I mean, but what, so you can set commitments, but like historically have there, you know, with sort of past international agreements, have, have those moved the needle? You know, I mean, if you, I mean, you can kind of come together and agree like, okay, we're going to commit to X, Y, Z, but A, it seems like those commitments are really hard to, to even get. And then B, like who's, how do these things get measured and tracked and who's holding these countries and their commitments accountable? Yeah. So basically, we have to hold each other accountable. You know, countries have to hold each other accountable and the commitments have to be really transparent so that we as members of the public can be holding our governments accountable. And one of the new things in the system that we're wanting to see put in place is that countries would make those very clear and transparent commitments about what they're going to protect and by when. Mm -hmm. And then there would be accountability, both to the citizens and to other countries in the world. You know, in the, in the, with the existing treaty systems, we've protected about or, or set aside about 15% of the world's land and about 7% of its oceans. Um, Seems pretty there's small. Obviously, there's <laughs> well, so ocean, much more that's yeah. needed. Yeah. You know, the, the 30% number is um, a doubling and a quadrupling of those numbers. And to get that done by 2030 is something that, again, we can do. We just need the political will make sure it can happen. I mean, is there um, is there will in your experience with countries like China or Brazil? And it's it, in like, where are we kind of with the argument of developing nations who've said, well, you know, developed countries have had so many decades of being able to just kind of, you know, grow and do, you know, and like do whatever they want to the environment, you know, in the name of kind of expansion of industries. We need that that time too. So, I mean, yeah. do you think that there are like, are, are, we, are we any further than where we were, you know, 20 years ago when discussing this? It's very different country to country. Um, so, for example, in Brazil, the current president is talking about um, opening up new parts of the Amazon rainforest to further agricultural development. Yeah. Um, whereas in China, uh, they're actually looking at putting in place a new system of national parks. To, to preserve um, some of their most endangered species and some of their most unique natural systems. Um, so we're seeing different, different things happening in different countries. And my hope is that this report will really be a spur for all countries to realize that the right path is one where we're protecting and taking care of our natural systems. And, you know, that goes along with things that are really critical in the developing world, like food security, mm -hmm. like energy security. 
um, you know, when you're relying on fossil fuels, you are less energy secure. When you're relying on energy efficiency and renewable energy, the kinds of energy that you need if you're going to be tackling climate change, you have more energy security. You know, similarly, if you are employing better farming practices, if you're protecting your soils, if you're trying to use methods that get more food out of less space in a way that that is healthy for the ecosystems around the farms, that's better ultimately for your food security. And so it's this change of mindset that is also really critical, Mm -hmm. not to somehow see um, industrial economic development as we've had in the past um, as being somehow the only path forward for um, progress and for helping people rise out of poverty. I still see that argument as, you know, kind of failing to take hold well, in the U.S. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, part of me does not see any big change um, that's going to happen. I still think that there is this idea that, like, renewable energy is kind of a joke to, to some people. But then on the other hand, you have, uh, you know, you have sort of statistics that say, like, no, most Americans kind of, you know, really do believe that climate change is a thing. It's just that our elected officials who are in charge right now, for some reason, aren't listening to the general public. So I don't know. I don't I mean, those are sort of two opposing like thoughts. But um, I guess it leaves me just not very optimistic. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, the the place to look for optimism when it comes to clean energy in the United States Mm -hmm. is at the city and state level. That's where we are seeing um, just real advances when it comes to solar and wind and energy efficiency. And then in the transportation sector, you know, moving to smarter ways to move around, uh, including electric vehicles. We're seeing that in part because it's what makes economic sense. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's not only about climate change, but it's also about the cost of coal, the cost of oil and gas. The fact that renewable energy and energy efficiency are becoming, you know, energy efficiency already is the lowest cost way forward, but renewable energy as well is becoming very low cost. And so these are things that that we're actually making a lot of progress with. Mm -hmm. Our federal government is trying to impede that progress. They're trying to support the fossil fuel industry. But there there is a lot of cause for optimism when you look at the local and state level. Yeah, that was going to be, um, you know, something that I definitely wanted to touch on. Like here in New York, we have um, congestion pricing just passed in the city. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my my question is like, is that just a drop in the bucket? Does that matter? Does like a, you know, the proposed tax on plastic bags in one city, is that going to really make a change in your opinion? Yeah, so I'm a big believer that every action really matters. Um, You know, Every time you have an action that proves the success of a model of doing something, other cities will pick it up. So congestion pricing in New York, New York is, you know, among the early actors in the United States on this. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of other cities really, really interested in this right now that are watching closely and thinking, okay, now how can I do this next? How can I make it work? What are the lessons I can learn from New York? Um, that is really important. That's how you get the spread of good practices. Yeah. And not just in the U.S., but around the world. Yeah. You know, the U.S. has, I think, been watching congestion pricing just as this example um, in Europe and, and learned a lot from 
the successful efforts there. Yeah. Well, we have to first figure out how to do it. because I think think it's great that we made the commitment. And now I'm like, um, you know, let's, let's see how this is going to get done. Um, but, but yes, optimistic one, we're going to take a quick commercial break in just one minute, but I wanted to circle back and ask something about the, you know, international kind of agreements in your opinion, does it matter if, if not, if, um, there is, if not, okay, I'm going to try this again because clearly I'm struggling. (laughs) Um, does it matter if one country isn't on board? Like, does everybody have to be on board or, you know, is it like all going to kind of fall apart if, um, you know, there are a few countries who are like, can't, can't move forward with this. Not my priority. Yeah. Yeah. We want every country to be on board, but what, what the global community has been doing of late is saying, if not everyone is on board, we will keep moving ahead with those who are until we get everybody on board. And, you know, the U.S. has been the bad actor recently, Mm -hmm. but I think that the global community also knows they can see the action at the city and state level, Mm -hmm. and they know that the American people want to keep making progress, and I think that's been making a big difference. All right. Well, we're going to take a super quick commercial break to hear a word from our sponsors, but um, stay tuned for more. This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker's first-of-its-kind virtual agritourism conference. Did you know that every $1 invested in tourism marketing returns on average 3 to $8 back? Not a bad ROI. Learn how to grow your agritourism business via 12 workshops entirely women-led. The local travel landscape is rapidly changing to meet the demands of the leisure, event, and corporate travel sectors. Whether you're a farmer or producer, a winemaker, a restaurateur, or a destination marketing organization, there's more opportunity than ever to capture these markets. The Virtual Agritourism Conference will provide you with insights and skills to keep your target demographic coming back for more. 14 speakers providing six plus hours of education that you can watch at your convenience anytime on any device. Maximize your time, budget, and resources, and focus on creative solutions to help your business thrive. Presented by Escape Maker and Fulton Stall Market, the full conference access pass is now available for purchase. Use the code HERITAGE2019 for $50 off a full pass at checkout. For more information and to purchase your pass, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Patrick Martins. I'm Brandon Hoy. And I'm Emily Pearson. Together we host The Main Course OG, where we cover food news and culture. Browse episodes of The Main Course OG wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Susan Casey Lefkowitz, Chief Program Officer of the Natural Resources Defense Council, about the UN Global Biodiversity Assessment. Um, Okay, so we were talking um, about kind of like, you know, what we need to do to move forward right before the break. And I'm wondering if we can spend a few minutes and just drill down on like some specific examples or policies that the organization, um, you know, would really like to see that can help tackle uh, some of the issues laid out in this report. So do you want to start maybe specifically around agriculture? Are there, are there a few kind of initiatives? Are they policies? Are they 
like regulations, you know, what, what would you like to see let's drilling down on ag specifically right now? Yeah, well, in agriculture, um, you know, we've been really focused lately on the health of soil. Um, what we're finding is that the health of soil is incredibly important, not just for the health of our crops and the health of our farms, but soil uh, holds carbon. It holds carbon, keeps it out of the air. It actually, healthy soil helps fight climate change. It also helps... Um, Grow. <laughs> hold w- I know. It's, 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 it's something that not a lot of people realize. You know, they think about the forest, rightly so, mm-hmm. as... Um, as trees is holding carbon and helping fight climate change, but so do healthy soils. And the other thing is that healthy soils can help farmers weather the impacts of climate change. So healthy soils hold more water, and that means that they can help farmers deal with droughts and also the kind of intense rain that we're going to be seeing more and more of as climate change worsens. Um, And so you know, what this means in a tangible way in terms of different kinds of policies, for example, is policies that would give farmers incentives to protect the health of their soils, for example, by using cover crops. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something we're, we're starting to see take hold. So, for example, um, Iowa recently launched a program to offer farmers a $5 an acre discount on crop insurance if they plant cover crops. And Illinois is considering a similar program. And it's these kinds of state initiatives mm-hmm. that can make a real difference both on helping avoid climate, the worst impacts of climate change and on actually building resilience of our farms to deal with the impacts of climate change. What about the like land use um, situation, right? I've been talking a lot about the renewable fuel standard, and I think there are a lot of environmentalists who see that as maybe originally well-intentioned, but um, actually having like pretty negative consequences. Are you, um, is the organization doing any work around how we use land, both domestically and internationally? Yeah, so internationally, um, most of our focus has been around land use in our northern forests and thinking about making sure that we can preserve intact forests, like mm-hmm. uh, the boreal forest that, that stretches around the crown of the earth. It's, it's sort of like the that last forest before you hit the tundra. And in many ways, it's the lungs of the earth, both the soil and the trees um, contain a lot of carbon, are very important for us. And yet it's a forest that's being cut down both in terms of um, having land for agriculture, but also it's being cut down for things like tissue paper and toilet paper um, here in the United States. And so, you know, it's it's thinking through how do we make sure that we are using our land in a way that, like with the healthy soils, helps us both fight climate change because land is so incredibly important for um, for capturing carbon and also helps us keep that resilience in face of the impacts of climate change. What about um, in talking about urban areas? I I found that this was interesting, you know, really interesting that the report kind of covered this. And it is true we're seeing like a huge migration towards urban areas. um, And what does it say? It's like the population has, I don't know, more than, yeah, of urban areas has more than doubled since 1992. What are some of the kind of like policies um, that the report has put forward to address this situation? 
Yeah, so, um, you know, it's interesting. When you look around the world, um, cities have really grown in size. And in many countries, like we work a lot in, in India and in China, um, cities are as large as, as what we think of as, as states here. They're, they're just immense. Um, and so there has been a lot of migration to cities. And in part, it's about how you make sure that cities can be resilient in the face of, of climate impacts and good places for people to live. Um, and so we've been doing a lot of work thinking about the infrastructure in cities. How do you build the right kind of transportation systems? How do you make sure people live near um, supermarkets and schools and other kinds of amenities? How do you make sure that um, that the buildings that are being built in cities are energy efficient so that cities themselves don't become um, high polluters of climate pollution? And these are all things that are incredibly important as we have seen the shift from rural areas to cities. Um, what do you think the role of the private sector is in making some of these big changes? Do you see that as a, an area of opportunity or do you see that as sort of a barrier to progress? So I think it's both. I think that there are some companies that are um, already really thinking about how they can change their own behavior and how they can influence their entire supply chain in order to have uh, a better impact on on the environment. So less of an impact on climate change, less of a negative impact on, on natural systems. But then there are other companies where the whole essence of their business is very harmful to the environment. And... Um, they could change, like they could shift the focus of their business to be on less harmful products, but many of them aren't yet doing that. And so, for example, when you look at the fossil fuel industry, there's potential there to change to be an energy industry and, and focus on cleaner forms of energy, but that's not what they're doing yet. Right. Um, okay. So um, what about the taking it to, I know I've taken it from like international, national, state and local. Now I want to take it to the individual level. Are there things mm-hmm. that, um, you know, what can like you and I be doing? Does it matter if we recycle? Right. I mean, things like yeah. that, like part of me feels like, I mean, are we so far gone that the individual level, um, interventions don't make a difference? Is that super, yeah. is that super pessimistic? <laughs> it's, it's something, it's something I hear a lot. And I do think that individual interventions make a difference, but I don't think we can only do individual change. Um, And to me, one of the greatest benefits of people becoming more conscious in their own lives of, you know, not wasting food, um, recycling, uh, how they, you know, how often they get in the car versus taking public transportation, those kinds of things matter. And they also matter because... It's really critical that individual people are pushing corporations and elected officials to take the right actions in those spaces as well. And that's where the big actions need to happen in order to make the kinds of transformative changes that we need. And we talked before about political will. Mm -hmm. Political will comes from your elected official hearing from all those people who eventually are going to vote for them. That's where the biggest difference gets made. And often the first step to that is um, just the kinds of actions that you're taking in your personal life. 
What is uh, coming? What are some um, things that you're working on right now at NRDC that you want to really make sure people know about? Oh, thanks for asking that. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that we're working on is trying to think about what the whole next slate of, of climate policies would need to look like in the United States if we're going to make the kind of progress that is needed based on the report that we saw last fall from the United Nations. Um, another thing that we're working on is trying to think about how do we build this international system of protected areas? You know, 30% of our land, 30% of our oceans by 2030. How do we set up a system and a framework to make sure that we can actually reach those goals? Um, that's a, it's a hugely ambitious goal, and yet it's one that we think that, you know, this report shows that now is the time that we have to be doing this. And so we're all in on, on working with the international community to make this happen. And for those listening, where can we go to learn more about the work that you're doing and, and follow it? So I would invite you to go to www.nrdc.org. Um, and that's where you'll find blogs from our, our folks on, on many different environmental issues. You'll find good background information. You'll find exciting stories about some of the new projects that we're working on together with our partners around the world. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. But Susan, I really want to thank you so much for coming on and joining us on this Sunday evening and helping us kind of um, unpack what is a very, uh, you know, very dense, complicated, um, you know, information and doing so in a way that's super easy to understand. So thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed speaking with you. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay, so want to give a big thank, uh, thanks to our sponsors for their generous support, as well as to our engineer, Jeet Paul. Show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast wherever they're found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Lee Ute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>